Good to see you guys this morning. Welcome again and glad you're here. Anybody go next door and see what's going on over there? We got a few guests from there in the back. We got a powerlifting competition going on over there. I kind of want to be over there. Just a little bit. Walked in there a couple times and met some folks and I don't know what it is. It's like being 14 all over again. As I was walking there, I started like sticking the chest out. What's up, fellas? You know, tried to roll it up. You know, it doesn't work anymore. Now they just fall back down when I try to roll it up. But uh, it is my reality. And just to be honest, it was never my reality uh, previously. But, uh, yeah. So we've been in this series for a while. This is actually just our fourth week. I think Caleb referenced it as a mini-series. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> it's called uh, Exodus Journey to Freedom. So we're, we're immersing ourselves into our reality in Christ as his follower of freedom. That is ours that we struggle with attaining to, quite honestly. We often don't live freely. We don't match God's vision for our lives, but it is his vision as we are shaped in his way, we grow in our ability to live truly free. Uh, We've discovered several important themes last three weeks. We've covered some ground as we've began looking at this people of God, Israelites, way back at about 14, 1500 BC as they're getting ready to leave the place they've been of slavery in Egypt and discover a new identity and slaves. We've, we've looked at how God, some of the themes is how God uses, quote, unimportant people. People on the margins, people who are socially irrelevant, so to speak, like midwives in their culture to rescue and protect a whole people. We've considered the name of God as God for the first time reveals his name in this, in English, awkward phrase, I am, that's my name, I am the God who has been with you, I'm the God who is with you, and I'm the God who will be with you tomorrow. We've considered signs from God. Exodus is just laden with signs. Some of them are really spectacular, and as, you, as we journey on in Exodus, we'll see them. But the interesting thing is, is it seems like the signs that is most enduring, the signs that really, can I say, matter, are the ones that kind of God gives very inconspicuously. They're not the spectacular ones. They're the ones that he throws out there to to Moses, like one day you'll come back and worship me on this mountain. Moses has to deal with that. We've, We've looked at Moses and God's relationship, and we begin paying attention uh, to a few things. See, God wants to use Moses, this refugee in Midian, this 80-year-old man. He, he plans to use Moses to lead a whole nation of probably over a million people now out of bondage in Egypt. And so they had this conversation that we looked at last week, and we, we noticed some things about Moses, his strength of ego his sense of justice, his heart for those who are being oppressed. We see some things. We also see God being patient with Moses as Moses gives 
objections and then a further resistance and God is working with him. As we've seen this, we've, we, we've, we've seen some contrast in, in the story of Moses. We've contrasted taking matters into our own hands, which we do, right? With trusting God, placing them in his hands. We've seen the theme of concealment, our brokenness, our sin, uh, the layers of our lives that we're not proud of, concealing those things versus confessing them. Learning to confess them to God, to others, and sometimes, most importantly, to ourselves. We, we've seen that, we've learned, we're beginning to learn we're really not plan A, we're plan B. We've seen in this conversation with Moses and God that God has to resort to plan B. Plan A was Moses, you go lead them. Moses' resistance was, please choose someone else. So God goes to plan B. And in that narrative, there's the striking awareness, I think, that plan B is really all God has to work with. Because he's working with people. Uh, none of us are the plan A version of ourselves. We're fraught with our own insecurities, our own resistance, our own brokenness. We're plan B. We don't like that. We'd like to be plan A sometimes, and God is restoring that in us. But we have to make peace with the fact that God is working with plan B we also saw this, begin to see this contrast of fixing versus formation. When we have issues, we have struggles, we want God just to come fix them. Just make it better, God. And that's normally not the way it goes. We're, we're looking for an experience. If I could just have a, an experience or if the right circumstances would line up, then things would get a whole lot better. And those are good desires. The reality is it's not normally how life works. Experiences are important. We should have some. But you know what? Experiences rarely change you. They'll have a residual effect for a season. But the way that we normally change is through the shaping process of life, of being in community, and most importantly, with God. So, our journey to freedom is laden with these shaping processes. Moses is 40, and he has to leave Egypt, and then he gets 40 more years to be shaped. And so by the time God comes to him, he's 80, and he doesn't even feel ready then. He's still being shaped. Now the reality is we also need experiences in our lives. Spiritually, it's not just being shaped. You have to become alive to God. And that happens through very simple faith in Jesus. You, you, you don't just get that by osmosis, by hanging around other people who believe in Jesus. No, a, a decision, a commitment, a step is asked for on your life. That's an experience that we're made alive. We become born again. Christ comes to live in us. But why do we have to become alive? Because the Bible tells us we're dead. 
Because of our sin, we're actually dead spiritually. This eternal part of us has up and died. So we have to become alive. But as we proceed, the way that we're going to grow is primarily, there'll be some experiences showered in there, but primarily it's going to be through life, shaping us. God partnering with the circumstances, the events, the people of our lives to shape us. That is the way it is. Much of our ministry here at Rock Hill is kind of oriented around the belief in those realities. We need to be made alive in Christ and we have to learn to live out that life in common, ordinary ways. And so we try to match that spiritual reality as best as we can. We don't do it perfectly. But by the way we're doing church. So, for example, we're not trying to just attract a crowd. We're not, we're not going for a wow experience. We like them. We like having them. But, we, but we've learned that's not how we really change. It's not how people really become apprentices of Jesus. So we try to present a reality face, front, way of what following Jesus actually looks like. I'll give you another illustration with the discipline we're engaging right now. Sitting under the preaching, teaching of God's Word. So my preparation each week, or whoever is giving the message on Sunday, uh, their, their role, their assignment, my assignment is not just to study. There is that. And that sometimes takes more time than I want it to. But I, I also must sit with, with God. And I must listen to him with my study, with the text, with whatever the topic is. And uh, I can't manage that. I can just simply be with him and allow him to speak to me about my own life sometimes and about your life, honestly, and about our life together. Then it comes to you as it is right now. And as you sit under it, what God's been doing in the person bringing the message, then you now have a responsibility to sit with it, to receive it, to reflect upon it, to question it, to allow it to be a shaping process in your life. So after you've received it, you have to decide, will this shape me or not? What's that look like? It looks like reviewing your notes. If you're taking notes, it looks like reflecting on it. It looks like maybe going back to the website and watching again. Someone said this week, I feel like I get more out of your messages if I go back and watch it again. It's like, well, then do that. <laughs> that helps. It means reflecting on it together in community. This is a core piece. Often our most significant learning comes from reflecting in community together. My best thoughts are rarely mine. They're other people's as I listen. Or maybe their insight triggers another one. And then, what am I going to do with it? As you sit, as you reflect and process, there's always, when we put ourselves under God's word, there's all, always this, okay, now what? How will this work out in my life? Now, I, when I preach, I can try to give you a few, quote, takeaways from the message. I'm not particularly good at that, to be honest with you. But I, I do try to do that. Uh, but you know what? That won't get very, you very far in the journey. 
you need to sit with it and reflect and ask God, what do you have for me? Because I, I, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you, now here's precisely what you should do with this. That circuit, when we, when we take that approach, two things happen. One, it creates a consumer culture in the church. I'll come consume the pa- passage and then the pastor will just go tell me what to do. Here's the second thing that happens. It's circumventing the shaping process in your life. Because growth is more dynamic. It's more integral than you just coming in here and then being told what to do. Occasionally, that happens. And when it does, that's great. Sometimes God will say to the speaker, tell the people to do this. And we should pay attention to that. doesn't mean he's always right, by the way. We're human instruments. But normally, the normal process is you have to let God's Word shape you, whether you're hearing it from here or in your own time. Now, freedom, the place of freedom, as you allow God's Word to shape you, comes through radical obedience. That's what we learn through Moses. And newsflash, obedience always feels radical at the point of decision. It may not be a big thing, but it will feel big to you. When we get challenged by God's Spirit, by God's Word to obey, it will feel like, I don't know if I want to do that or not. That's what it will feel like. And that's normal. And so we, we have to, as Moses did, enter this dialogue with herself, with God, in community, and say, are we going to obey? That's what spiritual growth normally looks like. It normally isn't anchored in a single experience. If you're chasing experiences, one, you're not in a great place for that here. Secondly, I'd encourage you to think about a different way that matches reality. Next Sunday, we're having what we call Common Sunday. Common Sunday is something we do from time to time where there's not a singular voice. We share with each other. There's multi-voices. And this is inspired out of a verse in Colossians called, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish admonish one another. There's a uh, reciprocity dimension to it of listening and receiving to each other. And again, it doesn't mean everything everybody shares is perfect or even always right. Can I just give you permission to be wrong? It's okay. We're human. The harder you try to be right, maybe the less right you're going to be. So it's okay to share what God's doing in your life, even if you don't have all the theology of it figured out yet. Part of being a community of faith is being a community of freedom. And if someone says something that's a little off, we don't go take them in the parking lot and stone them afterwards. <laughs> we just say, hmm, that might have been a little off. Now, we care about truth here. Don't get the wrong idea. If, you know, if I say something that's off then, and you know it, you better come talk to me about it because I'll need to be corrected. Common Sunday, maybe. Depends on what was said. So, it's a terrible burden to try to always be right about everything. I wouldn't encourage you to carry it. So, so next Sunday, you have some cards on your seats if you'd take that out. We're not going to do anything with it now. But these are questions 
we're going to give you opportunity to speak from next Sunday. You're in Common Sunday. Jordan will facilitate our time together. And you'll, you'll be given time. We're gonna, it's going to be a little bit karaoke. We're going to give you opportunity just to share. We don't want anything long. Please don't prepare a sermon. That's normally not a problem for you guys. Um, a minute, two at the most is great. 30 seconds is great. 15 seconds is fine. God may give you just one word to say. Do that. That's okay. That's good. Jordan will facilitate it. He's good at that. So uh, I encourage you to take that home with you. Bring this to the Lord and think about it. If no one shares, we'll just look at each other, I guess. We'd like you to. I think God speaks through people in the congregation, not just through the trained communicator. So this is your opportunity. Last week, we introduced the concept of this kind of plan B, which I mentioned already. God has to go to plan B because of Moses' resistance to obey him. Oh, by the way, I'm, I'm, could you go to the next slide, Jim? Yeah, so if you would like to share this week, it, it helps us. It's not required, but it helps us if we know in advance. Because if we don't have anybody we know sharing, then it makes Jordan really nervous, and he's a mess when he's nervous. So, <laughs> um, You can email right there. So write, write that down, and, and you can just email there. Uh, it'll go to Jade, and uh, she'll, she'll pass it on uh, to Jordan and myself, and we'll, we'll be in touch. Okay, back to plan B. So God's gone to plan B. <clears throat> Today, we're going to take a big leap. We, we've been kind of plodding through the first few chapters of Exodus. Today we're going from chapter 4 to chapter 11. We're going to skip a whole bunch of bad stuff called the plagues. I am going to summarize them here. Because our goal in this series is not to cover all of Exodus. It's to talk about what it means to be free. So that's what we're going to do. So after God accommodates Moses by letting him take his brother Aaron to go to Pharaoh to ask Pharaoh to let and his people go. They do that. They go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh refuses. Some of you know this story. Uh, Moses and Aaron, it, it shifts. God, after Pharaoh says no, Moses and Aaron began going to God on his, to Pharaoh on God's orders and saying, if you don't let us go, this bad thing's going to happen to you and, the, and, and your whole nation. And so Pharaoh at the beginning just like, Writes them off, and so these really weird kind of natural disasters start happening. Frogs, flies, gnats, darkness, lightning, hail, just really weird things, and it, and it, and it creates these natural disasters in the country. Now, the people of Israel are protected. They don't do anything. It just doesn't come to where they're hanging out, where they're living. But the rest of the nation is devastated from them. The signs, these signs kind of interestingly reveal not just a struggle between God and Pharaoh or Israel and Egypt. This, most of the signs re happen to represent in one way or another an Egyptian little g God. So they, for example, they got a frog God. And so God is kind of like throwing it in Pharaoh's face. 
But let me tell you what I think about your gods. So, this is problem because Pharaoh is held by the people to be a god. Pharaoh is seen as the protector of Egypt's welfare, of their sense of stability. But these disasters and this interaction, this interplay between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh are demonstrating that, guess what? Pharaoh's not in control. He's losing grip. He cannot protect his people. And this idea that he's sovereign, he's the protector, is being exposed for the lie that it is. And as a result, the whole culture of Egypt is crumbling. It is a mess. In the meanwhile, good old Moses and Aaron, the Israelites, are like doing their thing with frogs and gnats and flies, saying it, and it's happening. As things progress, it gets more traumatic and more severe. And so Pharaoh and his minions start pressing on Moses to pray to their God for their protection. Pharaoh starts cracking. I mean, read the story. It's unbelievable. He'll, as it moves on, he'll say, okay, okay, I'll let you go. Just make it stop. Make the frogs stop. And then it'll stop. And then Pharaoh will go, just kidding. Get back to work. Each time he changes his mind, it gets worse the next time. It repeats, and this is really important to remember because God's going to do something really severe to the nation. But what you have to keep in mind is God has given nine opportunities, I believe it's nine, to Pharaoh. In the meantime, what's happening to Pharaoh, he's not softening towards the idea of letting people go. The opposite's happening. His heart is becoming hard and resistant. He's getting angry. Now, God is not passively watching this. God is in the middle of it now. This is not shaping time. This is step-in at time. He's speaking directly to Moses. He's directing flies and gnats and frogs and lightning. And he's attentive to what's going on in Pharaoh. He's paying attention to it. And we're now at a breaking point in this whole story. It is a national crisis. So we're going to, that's where we're going to enter it. We're now in chapter 11 of Exodus. So we're going to, we're going to read some today. Or I'm going to read some today. And uh, we're, going to, we're going to lead up to what's the most significant event in Israel's history before Christ. So chapter 11 starts this way. The Lord said to Moses, this is after the other nine plagues, I will bring one more blow to Pharaoh. In Egypt. After that, he'll let you go. And when he does, he'll not just let you go. He's going to drive you out. Tell the people that men and women are alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. And then there's a commentary. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. Did you get that? The only one resisting now is Pharaoh. Everybody else is on board with what God wants to do by this time. They're tired of the frogs. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, This is what the Lord says. About midnight tonight, I am going through Egypt. 
Every firstborn, it's often translated son, actually can mean firstborn generically, females as well. We don't really know for sure if it was little boys and girls. That every firstborn in Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female slave who's at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will, listen to this sentence, there will be loud wailing in Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be. But among the Israelites, not even a dog will bark at them. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, they will bow down before me and say, go, And all the people who follow you. And then Moses says, and then I will leave, Pharaoh. And Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. You got to remember, this is not a shining moment, moment for Moses. This is the place he grew up. This is the house he grew up in. Can you imagine... I mean, try to, try to put yourself in that if, if somehow, I don't know how to set this up very well, but if like, if we're Israel and Lawrence is Egypt and we've lived here and done life here and God says, do what I tell you and I'll, I'll protect you guys. But the firstborn of the rest of the city is getting ready to die. I mean, you've got neighbors. You have people you love that are in that. And that's... Moses is not happy about this. This is not what he wanted to see happen. He wanted to see Pharaoh submit to God's plan. So he leaves angry. And then the Lord comes to Moses and Aaron. And he he does something really strange here. God starts talking about commemorating, observing, remembering about what's not yet happened. He's telling them how to remember what he's getting ready to do before he even does it. First, he says this. This month is to be, for you is to be the first month. The first month of the year. Now, don't, don't miss this. This is no small thing. It's, it's not really dramatic. But God is establishing his people from an enslaved people to a nation. He's giving them a calendar. And they still follow it. This is very, very central that's taking place here. He's constituting a national identity for a people. They're no longer going to be this tribe of indentured servants. They're going to not only leave, they're going to leave with the gold and silver of a country. They're going to have a place in history. That's what God's doing. And then God launches into this detailed ordering What's about to happen? He says, tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they can share it with their nearest neighbor, take into account the number of people there are. The animals selected must be year-old males without defect. You may take them from the sheep or the goats, whatever they can afford. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. Then the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And they're to take some of the blood of the animal and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of their houses. And then that night, 
They're to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. And this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked in your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it in haste, because it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, he says, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. It's a good little reminder for us there. There's more going on here than conflict between Moses and Pharaoh. God's about to show these competing spirits, these gods, who's in control, who is Lord of the earth. And then God says something very, very significant. The blood that you paint your doors with, it will be a sign on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This plague is wholly unique. Up till now, when God's bringing these plagues... His people don't have to do anything. He sent gnats to Egypt. He spared them. They just watched it. They're just protected because they're God's people. Nothing on their part is required. Nothing is called for. Not this time. This is strikingly different. God is calling Israel out. He's giving detailed instructions what they must do in order to have protection. They must follow them. They must not make exceptions. They must obey. God is instructing each household to take a life of an innocent animal. One without blemish. And paint their doors with it. In blood. In every household a life is being given. An innocent animal is being put to death. So a radical new dimension is being infused into this story, into this people, into like the narrative of human history. Don't miss it. It's called blood. The life source of animal life, of humanity, blood. It's a sign for God of a promise. The blood is to be a sign both to God and the people that God is committing himself to them. He is going to pass over their houses. And so here's another sign that they have to receive by faith. Will we do it? Will we slaughter the animal? Will we put the blood on our door? Will we place our confidence in this word from God for us? It's actually very sobering, isn't it? It's not festive. Then God says, this is a day you to commemorate for generations to, to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So Moses runs from God. And write to the elders and he says, go at once 
God has spoken. Select the animals for your family. Slaughter the Passover lamb right now. Put blood on your doors. None of you shall go out of that door until tomorrow. Stay inside. And the Lord is going to go through the land and strike down the Egyptians. But he'll see the blood on the top, the sides of your door frame, and he'll pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. This is not the stuff of children's Bible picture books. This is a dangerous God that they're dealing with. And, and Moses doesn't forget to tell them, obey these instructions as a lasting service. He says, because your service is shifting from Pharaoh to God. You're now a people for you and your descendants when you enter the land. One day out there when the Lord asks you to go to and your children ask, what does this ceremony mean? Tell them, this is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over our houses in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptian. God's saying, keep celebrating this. Keep remembering this is to become a proclaimed, announced story over and over. Enact it over and over. Keep it in front of you. Keep it fresh. Keep it new. Keep it real. Keep this Passover event. And the Exodus is about to explode in the narrative of this community. It is to mark your redemption. And I love this last statement. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. And they did what the Lord commanded. I think this is one of their finest moments right here. Normally when we find the people, they're like pushing back and arguing and grumbling and struggling. Here they just bow down and worship. They know that they've been in the presence of God. What an incredible moment. I would have loved to have been there. No other redemptive event in the history of this people matches Passover. Nothing comes close. The Israelites are about to walk freely out of Egypt. Freely. Spared from death. They're going to be passed over. Why? One word. That's right. Blood. Shed blood. They're going to walk out of Egypt in newness of life. An innocent life has been given for them. And now they will live because of it. They're going to walk out of Egypt set free. They're awful prolonged, suffocating slavery for 430 years. They're, going to just, they're just going to waltz right out of there with the wealth of the nation in their pockets. They're going to be asking for it. It's got their, their neighbors, their Egyptian friends are going to freely give it. Go with our blessing. They're going to walk out of Egypt set apart. Isn't that identifiable nation, a people, a holy tribe, purified. That was part of what the blood meant. It had a purifying meaning. 
It's incredible, isn't it? What's happening here? This exodus, this event, what, what they couldn't see is it was actually just foreshadowing something to come. A greater enterprise than Egypt, than Israel, something that was cosmic in its ramification. An enterprise where God is going to come and rescue all of mankind, those who can stand it. He's going to rescue them from not Pharaoh, but from powers of evil, the ruler of this world, it's called in Ephesians. And he's going to establish his kingdom over all the earth. It's going to come. That's what we're seeing here 3,500 years ago. This foreshadowing of something to come. The touch points of the Exodus and the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, his shed blood on the cross. It's astounding. It's worthy of your investigation. I can't give you all the takeaways. Look into it yourself. Discuss it yourself. Reflect on it. How you see Christ in this Passover event. There's this passage. I tried to find one passage that, you know, rather than uh, shoot a shotgun at the end here, that, like, tr- I did my best to try to find the kind of capture how Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover, of the Exodus. And I came up with this one, Colossians 1. It's uh, the best I could find. I kind of had some of these themes. So this might be worth you sitting with as you think about the Exodus. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Christ. And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. And that's enough right there, isn't it? By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you are alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard. One of our applications takeaway from this message is going to happen next Sunday. We're going to observe communion together. We're going to celebrate Passover as fulfilled in Jesus. In Christ, in the kingdom of God, Passover came to be about Jesus. Jesus who spared us from death. We've been delivered from death through His shed blood. Christ gave His sinless life on our behalf. Isn't that amazing? 
Christ who's given us new life. We've not just been spared from death. We've been infused with life. We've been made alive to God through Christ. If you've come to follow Jesus, that life is yours. It belongs to you. We live in that life. Christ who has set us free. The freedom is already ours. We don't have to earn it. Our awful prolonged suffering bondage to our own brokenness, to our own sin, to our own selves, to our own lies, the narratives that we believe about ourselves. That sin that enslaves us. Christ pronounces, the blood is on your door. Be free from it. Christ who has set us apart as a purified holy people. That's the divine comedy. Even, even though we're such a motley crew, so struggling still, in Christ we are holy. We're pure. We're set apart because of His shed blood. When we observe communion next week, we are going to be reconstituting ourselves as a people who've been passed over. Who've experienced God's mercy. I'm so grateful for God's mercy in my life. Do you know the difference between grace and mercy? We talk about grace a lot. I don't know that we talk about mercy enough. It's kind of the other side of the coin. Grace is kind of God's kindness to us, undeserved. Mercy is not getting what we did deserve. I was reading in my devotion this week in Psalm 123, and it starts as, this way, as the, as the slave looks to the hand of his master, as the maiden looks to the hand of her mistress, so we look to God until he comes and shows us his mercy. I don't want to tell you he has. There's all kinds of stuff you and, you and I deserve that we're not getting. So when we observe communion, we're going to say we're a people redeemed by blood. We've been set free. We're commemorating and re-entering that reality of freedom in the context of together, corporate Worship, re-entering a new freedom of what the Exodus demonstrated but just foreshadowed. We didn't get to be there 3,500 years ago. We get to be here now. And we get to bask in the reality of what Jesus has done for each of us. So good. I hope that's your story. I hope the Exodus, the Passover story is yours. If it's not, please, please, make it yours. Just like God told Israel, you have to do this. You have to put the blood on your door. It's not going to go well with you if you don't. The blood has been shed of Jesus for you, but you have to receive it. You have to say, yes, I'm going to give myself for that. I will trade my life for his. You have to trust it. His life comes to you, and you're made alive. So do it. If you haven't, do it. I beg you. If you have questions, keep asking them. Eternity, your eternity is hanging in the balance of that. So don't miss it. Don't miss it. Let me pray.
and we'll be done. We'll worship in response. God, we can only begin to understand the depth, the breadth of what Passover did for a people and rescuing them and the lives that were affected, both those who were rescued and those who suffered so deeply. And it conjures questions. We don't understand all of it. can feel really messy, God, but we see you came in Jesus and entered the the mess. You became one of us as God and you gave your blood, shed it freely for us so that we can be spared from eternal death and separation, so that we can walk in new life, so that we can become free so that we can be your holy people, your nation, your true Israel. Lord, we didn't deserve this. It's just an act of your grace and your mercy on our lives. But it is our identity. God, there may be some in the room who have not said yes to that. Lord, we, we ask that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would just come to them and say, I'm inviting you to be part of this holy nation. God, would you, would you reveal to them their, their brokenness in a way that my words cannot and just draw them into relationship with you. We want to say thank you for what you've done for us. It centers our lives. It anchors us. In spite of all of our struggle, and we have them. In spite of all of our imperfection, our failures, and our weaknesses, and we have them. Lord, we are anchored in what Jesus has done for us. It makes us more than a bunch of nice people trying to get nicer. It says, no, this is about our identity. This is who we are, about whose we are. Father, I pray that you would just bring that word of gospel to each of our hearts right now. Beloved sons and daughters of a dangerous yet, yes, but a beautiful God who shed his son's blood on the cross for us. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.